G'day everyone, great to see you all. Uh, let's pray before we look at God's Word together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you have revealed yourself in the Scriptures uh, and we pray now uh, that you might help us to understand them correctly tonight uh, and listen to them and live by them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's funny uh, how some sayings of Jesus have just entered the English language and I always laugh when people uh, quote Jesus without realising they're quoting Jesus. Uh, but if you ask people to actually tell you a saying of Jesus they know, so uh, you know, if you went out in the street and said, tell me your favourite saying of Jesus, uh, it's interesting how things have changed in recent years. I think for the last several hundred years, people would have said, oh, turn the other cheek or... Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you and people would have focused on those sort of verses but I think in the last 30 or 40 years John chapter 8 verse 7 has become the verse people love to quote of Jesus. Uh, you might know it in an older translation better but uh, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, why do people love that verse so much and in particular why in more recent years has that become the most popular verse? I think it's because we all hate being judged, don't we? And I think it actually says something about our world, that our world has moved from liking a verse that focuses on our responsibility and how we treat other people as a favourite verse, to verses about, don't you dare tell me how I should live my life. That says something, I think, about our modern world. So, we have the idea today that politicians, caught in adultery, theoretically, might say, oh well, let him who is without sin, as if somehow the fact that we're all sinners... Uh, excuses them of their responsibility for their actions. Uh, you see, that is how this has become used, this passage of Jesus. People use this quote by Jesus to almost justify their bad behaviour, as if Jesus says, it doesn't matter how I live and you shouldn't tell me how I should live, and especially to deflect their need to take responsibility. But today, as we look at it, I'm going to raise two issues with that. Firstly, does it actually say that? Uh, firstly, does this passage actually say what many people use it to say? But then secondly, a somewhat difficult question, did Jesus actually say it at all? Is this favourite verse of the Bible actually in the Bible? Uh, now that sounds a really weird sort of question from the preacher who every week tells you to trust the Bible and live by it and let it be your number one authority. So I'm going to deal with that second issue first. Uh, and as I do that, I want to flag... This is a really unusual sermon uh, and uh, I'm going away for a month after today uh, and all week I've been a bit annoyed that this has to be the last sermon I preach before I go away for a month because uh, normally I just teach a passage of the Bible and say so this is what this passage says and talk about how it applies to our lives but for the first part of today I actually need to explain how we determine what's in the Bible and what we actually trust about the Bible and I hope you actually find this really helpful and I've been really encouraged, actually, this morning, I think a lot of people found that it actually helped them see just how trustworthy the Bible is and sort of strengthen their faith, if anything. So look at your Bibles there at John chapter 8. You do want to look at it. Uh, and what you'll see is our passage today has square brackets around it. I don't know if it does on your phone, but uh, if you've got a paper Bible, it does. Uh, do you all see that? It's got square brackets from uh, chapter 7, 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, and it might have a little letter at the end telling you in a footnote that says something like, not in the most ancient manuscripts. You all see that in your Bibles or something similar? Now, what that's saying is that most scholars 
If you want to call me a scholar, you can include me in this, I don't, but anyway, 99.99% agree that when John wrote his gospel, this story wasn't in it. So they, they only added the chapter and verse numbers years later to help us sort of navigate our way around, but when John wrote it, it would have gone from what we call John 7.52 and the next verse would have been John 8.12. Now, how do we work that out? Well, you need to understand a little bit about how the New Testament was written, okay? So the New Testament was not one book. Uh, That's why we talk about the books of the Bible. It was written as individual gospels and letters and so forth. It wasn't in English. It's like that, uh, it was written in Greek. It was like there was a famous American senator who was trying to argue against them teaching Spanish in Californian schools. And he said, if English was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for me. Uh, Well, the New Testament was written in Greek, not in English. Uh, And they didn't have a printing press back then. The printing press wasn't invented till the 1500s. So before then, for 1500 years, what they had to do was make copies by hand. That's how the Bible came. So John wrote his gospel. I put together some slides here. I'm very proud of them. Uh, and I'm going to able to, this morning, I, I have an apology to make to Kevin of the back, because this morning I said, this thing doesn't work, and then someone told me I was actually just shooting the laser at people, <laughs> rather than hitting the button to go through the slide. So my apologies, Kevin, for telling you that you didn't know how to make, anyway, uh, I seek forgiveness. Now, so that, think of that as, uh, as John, he wrote his copy of his gospel, and then what happened is, because it was so important, people copied it uh, and people might have, there might have been 10 copies, might have been 20 copies, I just put three up and then they sent them out and they sent them to North Africa and they sent them to Egypt and they sent it to Jerusalem, and they sent it to Ephesus and they sent it to Rome, you know, so that people could read this important information about Jesus and then over time they made lots more copies and lots more copies and lots more copies and now I'm hitting the laser rather than the button again and, and so what you end up with is all these copies that all come <coughs> from that original copy of John's Gospel, and the same for Romans or Mark or any other book of the New Testament. Uh, So, uh, and then each of those, as they were copied out, people sent them all over the world. Now, here's what's really amazing. The amount of manuscripts we have of the New Testament compared to any other document or figure in ancient history is mind-boggling. Does anyone doubt that Julius Caesar existed and that he did some pretty incredible sort of military things. No one, no one doubts. I have to ask that because some people say we didn't walk on the moon and all that sort of thing. But does anyone doubt that? Well, there are, I'll hit the laser again, there we are. Of Caesar, Julius Caesar wrote his Gallic, well, they wrote his Gallic Wars, 50 BC or so. There are 10 copies of that. And the earliest copy we have is dated to a thousand years later, Okay. So that's how we know everything we know about Julius Caesar. They wrote this thing and the earliest copy we have is a thousand years later and we've got 10 copies of it. Plato, the great philosopher, no one doubts his right, that he wrote his writings. Well, we've got seven copies of his writings and the closest copy is 1,200 years after the time that Plato initially wrote it. How many manuscripts have they found of the New Testament? Well, the New Testament was written originally in the first century, so the earliest parts of the New Testament were written in 48 AD, which is about 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then most of them written about 60 AD, 
as the apostles started getting killed, they thought we better write this down for people, the latest around 80 AD, so that's when they were all written, Uh, remember we've got 10 of Julius Caesar, 7 of Plato, how many manuscripts have they found in the New Testament? Well, there is about 5,800 partial or complete manuscripts written in Greek, when you include the translation, because very early on, very straight away, they started translating to Latin and Armenian and every other language, because they wanted everyone to know, in total, there are 24,000 copies of manuscripts or part manuscripts of the books of the New Testament. And the oldest one we have is, I love its name, the Rylands Library Papyrus P52, so it sounds like a band from the 70s to me, but it was, it's been dated to around 120 AD. So it's not an original. We don't have any originals of the New Testament because paper doesn't work that way. Okay, that's just not possible. That's, if you say, well, it's only if I can see an original of the New Testament, well, you cannot believe anything in history. That's, uh, other than things that happened a few years ago. That's just not the way the world works. But what we do have is something written probably about 40 years after the original, that is a copy of John's Gospel. So Caesar, 10 copies, earliest copy 1,000 years later. Plato, 7 copies, earliest copy 1,200 years later. The New Testament, earliest fragments, not whole New Testament, earliest fragments within 100 years and 24,000 of them. It's pretty astounding. But someone might say, you might say, with all those copies they must have made mistakes, which is sort of right and is actually true, except that it's all those copies that mean we can work out what are the mistakes and actually work out what is the original. You see, if I put back the family tree I had before, does it show up on there some in different colours? Well, you see, what you've got, you've got the original, you've got all these copies, and then they find they're the ones we've got, okay? So you've got some very early, some a bit later. But what they can do is when they find one in Antioch, that is clearly totally different, as in totally separate, a separate source back from the original, from one they find in Rome, and they're exactly the same, historians treat that as proof that therefore we know what was in the original. You see how it works? And when they do all that study, and the New Testament is the most studied piece of literature in the history of the world, uh, here's the wonderful thing. Any disputable things, any points where it's different and they, they, they think, oh, which was the original, have no impact overall at all on the overall message of the New Testament. So the majority of any differences are along the lines of one says Jesus Christ and the other says Christ Jesus. So the scribe has just sort of swapped them around as he's written it down. Or one says Holy Spirit and the other says Spirit because the scribe has just left out holy or something like that as he's gone along. Now, what I hope is you can see how this should strengthen our trust in the New Testament as reliably recording what the apostles originally wrote. So, this is what Sir Frederick Kenyon, he was formerly the director of the British Library, uh, sorry, the British Museum, this is what he said. He said, the interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest extant, that's ones we've got, evidence, becomes so small as to be in fact negligible and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us as they were written has now been removed. Ah, I've got to move the slide, I wonder why I wasn't moving on. Both the authenticity and general integrity of the books of the New Testament 
may be regarded as finally established. He's not a minister, he's just a historian. You see, this is the thing. When people say, how can you trust what's written in the New Testament? Don't just accept that. The New Testament has been studied and criticised and has more historians grappling with it than any other literature in history and it stands up to critique. Unlike any other religious text, it stands up. Now, that doesn't mean you must believe it. You know, a person might choose to believe the apostles were lying about it all. I don't think you should, not try to convince you otherwise, but a, a person might believe that they were lying or a person might believe they were mistaken in thinking they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Again, I don't think it's a smart option, but you might choose to believe that. But don't not believe on the basis of the reliability of the New Testament. I think that is just willful ignorance. And so if we come to our passage, this is one of two or three passages that show how rigorous the testing is because this is one of two or three stories in the New Testament that are actually open to dispute. Now, why is this story disputed? Well, there's lots of reasons, but the main one is that in the earliest copies of John's Gospel that we have, it's not in it. So why is it here in your Bible? It's because when they did the chapter and verse numbers, the earliest copies they had, it was in it. So, but then they found earlier manuscripts and found it's not in it and no one wants to leave a chunk where everyone says, why has it gone from chapter 7 verse 52 to chapter 8 verse 12? So they keep it there. But this is the thing, that means we should not treat this passage of Scripture as the authoritative Word of God. You see, if something is the Word of God, we've got to take it seriously and we, don't, we can't mess with it. So that's the rest of the Bible. And that's why I want to say to you, this is not the authoritative Word of God. We should not base any doctrine or belief just on this passage. So some people then say, well, just throw it out. But the thing is, the story kept popping up in manuscripts. Uh, sometimes they tacked it on the end of Luke's Gospel, at other times they put it at the end of John's Gospel, at other times here. And so I think, and many scholars agree, people like Don Carson, New Testament scholar from America... Uh, I think this event probably occurred. I think this is a true story about Jesus uh, that was passed down verbally, if you like, but it wasn't originally in the Gospels as they were written. And what that means is, I think, is I want to look at it briefly now, partially because it's such a popular story and people quote it all the time, so I think we need to look at it. Uh, but any points I make from it, I want to make sure they come from other parts of the Bible as well. I don't want to base them on this. We have to be very careful before we claim that something is God's Word. So I hope that makes sense. So there's your Bible College lecture for today. I hope you found it helpful. Uh, if you have questions, if I've raised questions or issues for you, come and speak to me after church. Come and ask me about it. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about it. But now open up the passage and go to chapter 8, verse 2. Here is Jesus again. He's teaching in the temple. Uh, and the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they bring a woman to him who they have caught in the act of adultery. Now, straight away, there are all sort of questions that pop up that sort of show they have other issues, these people, besides wanting to obey God's law. So first of all, why are they hanging around peering in people's windows to catch them in the act of adultery? That says something about them. Secondly, where's the man? I mean, the law of the Old Testament applied to man and woman... Why have they focused on the woman? I think those two things give you an insight already into how ugly 
and self-righteous these people are. But really, they're not that concerned with the woman. Their big desire is to cause problems for Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. The woman is just sort of the pawn they're using in their game. So look at verse 4. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. You see, this is a real test for Jesus. You've got to understand why. Because if Jesus says, no, I disagree, then they would say, look, we told you all along, he's weak, he is condoning sin. He's saying adultery is okay. It's not that bad. And he'd be contradicting God's word that says sin is serious and, and God will judge. But if he says, yes, you're right, well, then he's just sort of supporting their religious hypocrisy and their judgmentalism. But Jesus is far too clever for them. The answer is masterful. Look, firstly, because it's so clever at getting out of their test. Jesus was incredible at that, how he turned the question back on people. But then secondly, because of what it teaches us about God and about grace and about sin and about forgiveness. So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 7. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Now do you see why that's so clever from Jesus? Because unlike how many people use this passage, you see often people use this passage, oh so Jesus says don't you tell me what I'm doing is wrong, don't judge me. No, Jesus is not accepting or justifying her sinful behaviour. He's not minimising how awful adultery is. To commit adultery is an evil sin, a sin that deserves God's judgment. Like all sin, like greed or malice or gossip or sexual immorality or dishonouring your parents or all sin. In fact, you really see Jesus is not condoning her sin in the last sentence of the passage. Just look at it there. It's amazing how often people leave verse 11 off when they're using this to say, don't tell me how I should live. Look there at the end, he says... Go and from now on, do not sin anymore. See, Jesus doesn't minimise sin. He says sin is serious, we're all facing God's judgment for it. The whole reason he came is because we need forgiveness and he won that by dying on the cross for us. But while he doesn't excuse her, what he does do is challenge their right to enforce the judgment. See, he shames all these men into realising it's God's jo job. To judge, not theirs, and they are sinners like her, so who are they to stand in judgment? See, he's not condemning their concern at her sin. He's condemning that self-righteous judgmentalism that takes pride in our own godliness and then writes off people who fall short. It's a warning we all need to hear because we all have that tendency to self-righteousness, don't we? And in his response to the woman, I think we have an example of the way the gospel relates to sinners like us and how we should relate to our world. See, in a way, what this story does for us is give us an illustration of how we should relate to our world and how we should relate to one another. You see, Jesus shows us it's not as simple as the two things Christians often do. It's not as simple as condemn sin and announce judgment but it's also not as simple as ignore sin and leave it be. Instead, like Jesus did, we have to walk that line of pointing out 
the seriousness of sin, but then rather than standing in judgment, offering the grace of Jesus. So for the last section of my talk, in the light of John 8, I just want to think about how ideas in this passage might actually work out for us using other parts of Scripture. So firstly, I want to think about how we relate to our world. And the first thing I want to say, there's some headings on your outline, the second column of your outline. Uh, The first thing I want to say about that is, part of the gospel is warning about sin and its consequences. That is part of the gospel. There is a reality in Jesus' message that God will judge sin and we need to warn our world of the coming judgment. Romans 3, 23 is very clear. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God has said, He has set a day when He will judge. And Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And He can't make it any clearer than Hebrews 9, 27 that says it is appointed for people to die once and after this, judgment. People need to know that. It is unloving to not point out the reality of sin to our world and warn people of God's just judgment. And sometimes, as Christians do that, people will say, oh, take the log out of your own eye, or let him who is without sin cast the first stone, because often people don't want to think about themselves and God's judgment. But we can't make people not feel that. We have to just make sure it's not true. We have to make sure that we're not announcing it hypocritically. And there's two keys to that. The first is, second point there, like Jesus, we must never declare God's judgment without sharing the truth of God's grace. I only quoted the first half of Romans 6, 23 before, and you must never do that. Rebuke me afterwards. Because the second half is so important. Because it starts with, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we must never just tell people about sin and judgment. We must always tell people the wonderful news of the gospel. Jesus did not come the first time to bring judgment. He came to offer forgiveness. He came to die for our sins, to take the judgment we deserve so that we might be forgiven. Now, you cannot grasp that if you don't grasp that you're a sinner that you need God's forgiveness. You can't ask God for His forgiveness if you don't think you need forgiveness. But it's the grace of the gospel that has to be the centre of our message. That doesn't mean tone down the message. Grace doesn't mean soft. You see, Jesus offered grace and forgiveness, but then said, go and sin no more. And that is actually a model of the response He wants from all people. Come and accept my forgiveness... And now repent and turn from your sin and seek to live for me. That is what Jesus wants people to do. You see, we tell people that being a Christian involves changing your life out of response to what Jesus has done for you. There's another element to that though, and that is you must always share the gospel from the position of being a fellow sinner rather than a self-righteous Pharisee. One of the most famous stories Jesus ever told is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you know that story? And he said that two people went to the temple to pray and one was a Pharisee and he said, Dear God, I thank you for how good I am, basically. He said, I I thank you that I am not a sinner like him over there. And then the tax collector came in and fell to his knees and said, God, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, only one of those men 
went home right with God. And it wasn't the Pharisee. See, we must never forget that you are not a Christian because you are better than other people. You are not a Christian because you are naturally more righteous than other people. You are a Christian because you have recognised your sin and accepted Jesus' offer of forgiveness. So never, ever share the gospel from the position of being a Pharisee. Do it as a fellow sinner who has found forgiveness. Well, that's how we relate to our world. But I actually think there is a subtle difference to how we relate to our Christian brothers and sisters. You see, in one sense, there's not a difference. It is an overwhelming theme, not just in this passage, an overwhelming theme of the New Testament. Avoid judgmentalism. Don't be a Pharisee. There are so many relevant ideas in the New Testament about this. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Make sure you take the log out of your own eye before you dare to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. To pull it all together, when you pull together the teaching of the New Testament on this, I think the key idea is we need to be much quicker to judge ourselves than we are to judge other people. We need to be much more concerned with how we're living than with how other people are living. Much more concerned about our godliness than other people's godliness. I think that's the key. But at the same time, there is a strand of New Testament teaching that makes it very clear that in some sense, we are called to judge one another. It sounds strange, but we are called to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. It's Paul talking to the Corinthian church, to Christians. He says, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? That's people who are not professing to be Christian. Don't you judge those who are inside, but God judges outsiders. Now, I can't go into this passage in detail, but the point is that Christians who love one another will not allow sin to just go unchallenged in one another's lives. See, to put it very starkly, let he who is without sin cast the first stone doesn't mean they were wrong to be concerned she was committing adultery. They were wrong in the way they dealt with it. Christians are called to love one another enough to sometimes challenge one another and even rebuke one another sometimes. You see, but we do it with grace and love, not with self-righteous judgment. We do it with the desire to help the other person put off their sin and put on godliness. And we do it with humility, not in self-righteousness. We ask questions before we make judgments of other people, recognising our own failings. I've been thinking all week of an example to finish with, sort of like a worked example for what that looks like, Uh, but I didn't want to use adultery or a sin like that, because in a way that's obvious, isn't it, when a person commits a sin like that, that is so uh, awful. I wanted to do something more mundane uh, and I thought, well, what about if there's someone... Who's a, who's a member of the, your church, who doesn't make meeting together at church a priority. You know, they come once in a while and they're always putting other things above it. What do you do in that situation? Because it's not good for them. If you love them, you don't want them to do something that's not good for their spiritual health. That's not what God wants for them. But there's two wrong ways you can then respond to that, that Christians often do, sadly. The first is the Pharisee. And the Pharisee judges that person. And they they sort of write them off. I mean, they're hopeless, aren't they? And the Pharisee always talks to other people rather than a person. That's how Pharisees work. 
And so they, they say, you know, gee, so-and-so isn't very committed, are they? They're not concerned because always on the end of that sentence is, unlike me, look at me. We can even hide our Pharisee under prayer points. I pray that Fred, I always choose Fred because there's no Fred on our church role. I pray that Fred might understand better what it is to be a part of church. It's unspoken, but everyone there hears the words that we haven't said, unlike the committed ones like me. But the other wrong response is what I call the John 8 misquoter, who says, oh, who am I to throw a stone? If Fred doesn't get to church very often, who am I to say anything? They are both wrong reactions. The right reaction is to care enough about Fred and his spiritual state to gently try to encourage him. That's the right reaction. To call friends, I know you seem to be struggling to get to church. Can I give you a lift? Can I help you get there? Maybe you then find out Fred's not yet a Christian. And so you just say to him, it's wonderful. Whenever you come to church, we just want you to hear about Jesus. Come and do Christianity Explain with me. If you discover he is a Christian, but says he doesn't think that it's important to meet with other Christians, you might try and read the Bible with him. You might try and share how valuable it is to have him as a part of the fellowship. There might be a time down the track where a harder word is necessary when a person knows what the Bible says but just doesn't care. But you see how it's got to be driven by an actual love and concern for him, not self-righteousness. That's what Jesus desires for us. He doesn't desire that we just say, oh, it doesn't matter how anyone else lives, who am I to care? He wants us to care deeply, but he doesn't want us to be Pharisees who just use other people's failings as an excuse to judge them and lift ourselves up. That's what Jesus doesn't desire from us. Well, if you have questions at it tonight, I'd love to talk to you about them. As I say, this is a a difficult passage, uh, but I hope it's been helpful for you, and I'd love to talk to you more about it, but now I'm going to pray for us, so let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the trustworthiness of your Scriptures. We thank you that you have revealed yourself and most wonderfully your son to us through your word. And we thank you that we can trust that and live by it. And as we think about this passage, Father, we do thank you for the reminder to us to not be like Pharisees, to not be people who are quick to judge. But at the same time, Father, help us to have that genuine love and concern for one another that Jesus does encourage. And so, Father, we pray that we would not be people who excuse sin in our own lives, we would not be quick to judge others, but instead we would be people who treat our own sin seriously, but at the same time show grace and love to all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.